Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to another episode here of Crime and Science Radio. Today's guest for Doug and Jan is Dr. Donald James. The show is called Crime Scenes, Criminalistics, and the Cutting Edge in Los Angeles, an interview with former LASD criminologist Professor Donald Johnson of California State University, Los Angeles. This show is a little bit, you're going to see a little bit rawness in this one because they actually did this one live at an event. So I was going to cut out the beginning part of it, and I'm like, no, let's listen to this, you know, the, the, the rawness of how the, uh, how the show was because it's a fascinating interview, and you guys are going to love it. Uh, first, also, I want to let you know that all the shows here on Suspense Radio are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for all their great authors like Lisa Jackson and Kevin O'Brien. Also, we have Intensity, Skill, and Tenacity, the female bodyguards of Elite Guardians Agency have it all. Bodyguard Kate Singleton stumbles upon her next assignment quite by accident when she finds out that local restaurant owner Daniel Matthews is in danger of being put permanently out of business. It will take the two of them to find out who's behind the intimidation and threats before a would-be killer strikes again. Make sure you check out, without warning, by Lynette Easton, and you can visit LynetteEaston.com for more information. And also, when a deception specialist known as the Raven finds himself in a position to blackmail a prominent politician, he's only hoping for a few extra bucks. However, he quickly finds himself in over his head with the Ukrainian mafia and deep in a life-threatening plot codename Nevermore. Mike Napa, we've talked about him many times before. Private investigators Trudy Kaufman and Samuel Hill must scramble to sort out the clues to rescue the Raven from a wild card bent on revenge. Please visit BakerPublishingGroup.com for more on this book called The Raven by Mike Napa and all of their books that they have going on. So let's jump in now. Again, you're going to hear this. This is a live event that they did a couple weeks ago um, and Crime and Science Radio is back with Donald James Johnson. So here we go. So take it away, Doug and Jan. An interesting image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, and, uh, and we all both that. said, hey, we have to wear clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with this? Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Jan Burke. Uh, my uh, partner in crime for crime and science radio is on the other side of Don here. That's Doug Lyle, MD, who's uh, the author of Forensics for Dummies and other um, great books. Uh, his website is a great resource for any of you looking for forensic science information. Um, and this is Professor Donald Johnson of Cal State LA, um, whom we're really pleased to um, have as our guest. So just before we really get um, rolling here, I want to make sure um, you can hear me in the back, okay? All right. So good. We, we, we were a little concerned about that, but all right. Um, 
Okay, so uh, welcome to our episode of Crime and Science Radio. I'm Jan Burke with Doug Lyle, and we are really pleased to present today uh, To Learn and Die in L.A., or um, Crime Scenes, Criminalistics, and the Cutting Edge in Los Angeles. This is an interview with former LAS, LASD criminalist Professor Donald Johnson, of California State University, Los Angeles. Welcome, Don. Yes, it's well, great to have you here. Thank you, my pleasure. And yes. <laughs> so, um, Professor Johnson was an expert in criminalistics with an emphasis on crime scene investigation and reconstruction, and that's uh, homicides and sexual assaults especially, and forensic biology. Um, and we will learn more about him and his background as we go along. Well, Don, welcome. Uh, let's talk about your life before you got into this uh, criminalistic business. What were you doing before all that? Well, actually, uh, my work in the forensic sciences began at, at an early age. Uh, shortly after high school, but before college, I worked as an autopsy technician at a teaching hospital. And the coroner of the county where I lived at the time did not have his own facilities. So he had a contract with the hospital to perform his autopsies. So there I was introduced uh, to not only hospital pathology, but also forensic pathology. And it was my first formal introduction uh, to the field. And it was a, a, just a remarkable experience. And in fact, I. Um, Many of the things I learned there, mind you, this is some 40 years ago, um, many of the things I learned there, many of the skills that I acquired, I, I, I still use today. And I can give you an example of that. Uh, recently, I was asked to assist in a rape-related pregnancy case. Now, uh, often in these cases, uh, the pregnancy is the only physical evidence of the rape. Now, in this case, it actually was a, an ectopic pregnancy, an abnormal pregnancy, a fallopian tube pregnancy, and it did not uh, develop to term, and it actually uh, was removed surgically. But I was able to uh, readily identify embryonic tissue, although it was you know, disorganized, uh, because of my experience some 40 years ago as a, as a teenager in surgical pathology. So it was, uh, I've been very fortunate to have such um, well, educational experiences. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, but um, actually prior to that, um, in high school, on Saturdays I worked at a funeral home. And occasionally uh, the, the people there would allow me to respond with them to death scenes. And actually the first coroner's case that I saw was a man who, committed suicide at home, and he had uh, hung himself with his own uh, waist belt. But what, um, well, what was striking, and I remember it as if it were yesterday, uh, was the, the deep, dark, you know, discoloration of his, of his face. So certainly, uh, yes, there are, <laughs> there are many, uh, well, many things you see that are, well, unforgettable in this 
this type of work. <laughs> that is the stuff of horror movies. No. Uh, well, obviously there's a difference between hospital or clinical pathology and uh, forensic pathology, uh, which has to do with legal issues. What drew you into the forensic field? Yes, actually, um, uh, in uh, 1989, when I joined the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department uh, as a criminalist, uh, my mother sent me um, uh, one of my third grade writing assignments that she kept for those many years. And the assignment was, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? So my first wish was for a robot. Uh, my second wish was for a helicopter. And my third wish was for a crime lab. So, yeah, and so all of these um, were to serve, you know, in, in uh, solving crime. And I think what really uh, caught my interest was the, the TV show Batman, you know, with Adam West and Burt Ward. And uh, I just found that so exciting to uh, solve crime with science. Um, and of course, all those wonderful gadgets the Cape Crusaders had, and such, and and the Batmobile. I mean, what a what a car! <laughs> but uh, so I I know that had certainly had an influence. But as far as my interest in uh, biology and pathology, actually, that dates even earlier. Uh, when I was a uh, um, a child, um, oh, many of my relatives died, natural causes, I'm from an old family. And, but I was confronted very early in life with uh, death, and uh, so I began questioning life and death at an early age, and it was only natural for me, actually, to, to investigate it scientifically, just the way my mind works. So that's how uh, I've had an interest in biology, you know, as an academic interest, as long as I can remember. So, uh, yeah, so that's sort of my my origins. I love your three wishes. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Mine, that's right. mine was for a new baseball glove, a chemistry set, and Bridget Bardot. Oh. <laughs> we share similar I got two interests. of them. Oh, right, right. The chemistry set? <laughs> well, see, just as you were uh, interested in chemistry, I was interested in biology, and I was, uh, well, when, uh, well, I was sort of that odd kid on the block, you know, that is, I was dissecting animals. Uh, I prefer doing that than going to baseball games or something. <laughs> uh, of course, the animals were neighborhood pets that were buried out in the wooded area near the home, and my mother got some complaints about that. <laughs> but, but it was, well, just as kids will take a, a radio apart to see how it works. Mm -hmm. It's something similar. Yeah. So, now, how did you go from, say, the neighbor's uh, pet cemetery <laughs> to, the, uh, to the L.A. Sheriff's Department uh, crime lab? Yes, well, uh, uh, during college, uh, I um, uh, began working at the L.A. County Coroner's Office as a student professional worker. And I there met uh, uh, many of the local criminalists and became familiar with the local uh, forensic laboratories, and uh, um, several of the criminalists at the coroner's office, L.A. County Coroner, had transferred to the sheriff's department, and they were um, uh, responsible for hiring. So actually, then a number, a number of years later, they con they recruited me, and uh, uh, 
at the, that time, actually hiring was very uh, lean. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's better now, but uh, um, I well I jumped at the chance. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's what I've been you know preparing for all my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, so was that like at the main lab over on Roberts? Was it Roberts uh, Beverly, Beverly? Beverly Beverly Boulevard? Beverly. Yes, yeah. twenty twenty West Beverly. Yeah, when they were still reusing buildings that right, like right. whatever and department in LA uh, had given up. Yes, and we were exactly, <laughs> and we were. Um, well, our um, the section that I was assigned to, uh, yes, it was well in the basement and uh, without windows and oh, such. Right. Mm -hmm. So, what were your responsibilities there? What, what kind of work did you do for them? Yes, well, I was uh, hired as a criminalist, and uh, I first was assigned to the controlled substances section. This is then where we analyze suspected uh, illicit drugs, and I was assigned that uh, section to well, uh, largely to gain experience with uh, expert testimony, courtroom testimony. And uh, so I was there for about a, a year and a half in that section and then later uh, transferred to forensic biology. And that's where I remained uh, for some 15 years. But there I then uh, was responsible for the analysis of biological evidence, but also uh, uh, responsible for crime scene investigations. Mm -hmm. That is the um, uh, the criminal as the criminalistics aspect of of CSI. So you were doing both, going out to the scenes and processing the scenes, and then also doing work inside the lab itself. Yes. Yeah. And now at one time, actually, uh, say if you uh, worked uh, a crime scene then you were then responsible for actually testing uh, the evidence yourself, which was a great experience. That is, you could be able to relate uh, laboratory findings to what you saw out in, out in the field. Now there's a greater division of labor for, for the most part. It's a more efficient way of working, but um, it, it sometimes can lack that continuity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, you're called to a crime scene. There's a body. The police have come. They've done their thing, and they call the CSI guys. Take us through that. What are the basics? What do you do? What what steps do you take? Yes. Well, um, as far as the basic steps, the well, the first procedure, uh, as far as procedures, yes. On on arriving at the scene, I'm sorry. First, as far as forensic personnel, we would be called by the detectives. All right. So we're asked to. Uh, so they would contact dispatch, and we were then uh, called to a scene. Uh, uh, the first step is actually signing in. So that's very important. A log is kept of, of all personnel involved uh, at the scene, date and time of uh, arrival and departure, your unit of assignment, you know, your purpose for being there. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm reminded of a case where we found in the in the backyard of the homicide scene, we found a shoe print. And we were thinking, oh, this is, uh, it's from none of the uh, personnel that were there, at least on the, on the record. And uh, ah, so we were thinking this is a, you know, this maybe might be from the assailant. Come to find out it was from an officer who hadn't recorded his name in the log. Mm -hmm. We finally figured that out and tracked him down. But it, there, that's uh, an important step. But following uh, signing in, there would be then a, a typically a briefing 
uh, by the by the detectives, where we would uh, be told, well, basically what's known, what's suspected, perhaps even a, sort of a theory uh, of of what has happened. Uh, so after the briefing, we would then you know begin our investigation. Now, if it were indoors, let's say such as here. Uh, None, uh, so the the crime occurred indoors, but we're still concerned with the exterior. That is, how did the assailant get to the uh, get to the location? By car, by foot. We even had killers on bicycles. Uh, so um, so we're always you know concerned about the exterior, uh, even though it's the a crime occurred indoors. Uh, we would assess, say, the boundary. Of course, the area is cordoned off. But uh, we would uh, consider, you know, is that appropriate? So it's taped off, but maybe we might have to extend the uh, the boundary further, just depending on the circumstances. But after that, then assessing the exterior, then we would uh, the typical yes next next step would be a walkthrough, initial sort of tour of the crime scene, where there we're trying to well just establish some of the basic elements of the crime. In fact, in some cases, um, we learn later a crime hadn't occurred. So that's one thing, just from the start, trying to establish whether a crime had occurred. Now, sometimes, of course, it's obvious. But I'm reminded of a case where um, uh, there was um, well, a body wrapped in plastic on the flatbed of a truck. So someone finds this body. And uh, so we're called to the scene. So the bodies wrapped in uh, white plastic and then taped with, you know, bound with duct tape on the outside of the plastic. But it did have an unusual outline and the coroner's office was not going to respond unless we could, we would confirm that there is a dead body. So uh, we processed the scene up to getting into the, onto the flatbed of the truck. We made a path and I just made a small incision in the plastic uh, to come to find out that it was a, a dead dog. That this was actually in a parking lot at, a, you know, a, like Laverne City of Industry, I think the Commerce or that area. But, um, right, right, and just left, uh, so a, um, a crime had not occurred, at least uh, not against humanity. Right, but there's, there's many examples of that. You might find, uh, real quick, you might find this one of interest. Uh, uh, a hotel room in Antelope Valley, just a, literally a bloodbath. And um, the detectives were not able to reach the, the guest who had just, mm. uh, the guest who was, who had, had, had uh, the room was for. So no one there, housekeeping comes in, discovers this bloodbath. To make a long story short, the man, uh, he, uh, the guest was uh, alive and well, um, but he had, uh, well, bleeding hemorrhoids. Mm. He had a terrible bout. He mm. was going to miss his flight. He didn't tell housekeeping or, you know, that, by the way, <laughs> there's large pools. You know, there's blood pools, uh, clotted blood and, and, and clothing. He left, just left behind because he was going to miss his flight. But come to find out again, it wasn't a crime had not occurred. I bet he didn't even leave a tip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's just going to be my guess. But he was, <laughs> he was on my flight. 
right? Yeah. But, uh, so what are some of the things you run across when you go into a crime scene that makes it especially difficult? I mean, other than big-footed detectives stomping all over everything. Well, what that's are some a, of the things that really, start, make it, really make it tough for Yeah, you? That's, a, that's a start because actually the scene can be altered. Right. Uh, since it was, you know, it had it been initially uh, discovered. Uh, but, uh, well, one thing that makes it difficult uh, is actually the, um, the physical record of this crime is always incomplete. We're just seeing bits and pieces, uh, evidence of the crime. So there's gaps in our knowledge, gaps in this, this physical record. See, ideally, the physical record would be such that we could read it and then tell you ex exactly what happened from beginning to end in a, in a seamless fashion, like you're watching a film. But that's not the case. Uh, we just see bits and pieces of the puzzle. And so again, there's, uh, we're, um, there's gaps, in, gaps in our knowledge. Uh, as far as other things that can complicate a scene, uh, well, it, it, um, we look for things out of place. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, something like in this room, we might see, ah, let's say that center dish there is missing. Oh, there's, that's odd. There, there was something there before. It's missing now. Uh, you know, we look for these kind of patterns. But sometimes you're just at, you're at a scene that's just filthy. Uh, just that's how the people live, or the, just that's the location. So it's it's hard to tell if something's been moved and used in the crime. It's just uh, it's there's just garbage and filth about. So, and that can complicate things because, mind you, um, we're, we're, of course, looking for evidence directly related to the crime. But often we don't know if, if this is related or not. That is to say, there can be a lot of background, like in this room. If a crime occurred in this room, and now we're going to process it, well, we'll find, say, your fingerprints here. Now, you weren't involved in the crime. But you left fingerprints, and, and but we don't know is that is is your print related to the crime or not? We don't know. If we're going to have to collect it and then assess that later. See, there can be a lot of just naturally occurring, if you will, background evidence that is completely unrelated. But the problem is we don't know that, and so we're just going to have to process the the entire scene uh, and just work it out later. Um, sometimes we can, you know, it's obvious, ah, that, that knife, it's blood, it, there's, it's still wet with blood, ah, that's involved, so on and so forth. But that other times it's, it's not uh, as obvious. Mm -hmm. Those are, you know, some of the limitations. Another thing might be, let's say, a, um, uh, well, in some cases, let's say a, a, a stabbing case. A person can be stabbed, they drop where they stand. In other cases, it might be, well, it's, there's a knife attack and that person's bleeding and struggling and fighting and then the whole of the room is covered in blood. And the reason why that would, well, first, there's more evidence now we have to consider, but also in knife attacks, what we're looking for, there's the possibility that the killer, the attacker, cut his or herself. That's rather common. And now they're bleeding at the scene. Now we have, you know, their blood at the scene but it's finding their blood against this then sea of other blood stains and such. 
so when sometimes again it may not there might be an indication that yes this is from the assailant say uh, there's a case of where a man was um, stabbed twice in the back while jogging in the on in Compton just in his neighborhood and actually the assailant cut himself while stabbing him and there was a blood trail leading away from the body so we could tell ah, these drops are you know the the blood source is moving away from the body so ah all right we have, we may have then a bleeding uh, assailant now i say may because here's a here's a case where a man um an elderly man was stabbed in his home and he was robbed there's a blood trail we found leading away from the house but uh what we uh, what we found at the end was this trail was actually the victim's blood that is the assailant was covered in victim's blood just his clothing was soaked in victim's blood he was actually dripping victim's mm -hmm. blood so that's unusual but see here's another like a, as far as limitations of scenes here we have this exception there that's the problem with our work there's always some exception we don't have um there are a few absolutes is the point so we're always we're trying to look whether it's at a scene or in the laboratory for some marker that is to say if you find this it means this and only this that's like ideal for us but it's often well if you find this it's probably this but it could be this you know it's probably a homicide but it could be an unusual suicide the problem is we don't you may not know working the case which one it is um so in the lab and in the field we're looking for that magic bullet that is you find this it is this and only this but those are few and far between I was going to, a couple things. One, I just, um, earlier when you were talking about uh, finding the officer's uh, shoe print, reminded me of a, a, a question I wanted to ask you about the interaction of the civilian workforce with the sworn officers and, and law enforcement. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship? Yes. Well, in, in, as far as my personal experience, I've 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 always had I always had a, a good working relationship with detectives, and overall, they're very they're they're very respectful of our work, and they'll say, uh, you know, go do your magic. Mm -hmm. um, I think, but uh, as far as um, my personal interactions, what I as far as challenges, I um. Um, what I found challenging in working with detectives is being able to give them the answers to, to the questions they have. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of a homicide case where a, a, a prostitute was murdered. She was stabbed multiple times in the chest, and her body's found in an alley. Apparent, and there was feces, a bowel movement on her chest. Apparently the assailant defecated on her after she died but uh that was brought to me as a as a criminalist and and they asked you know, can you can you type this and actually we didn't have a a method to do so even though we had dna was in place this was a a, a problematic sample um see most of the time or that is to say for all other samples our standard procedure worked just fine 
but feces was the exception. And so that actually prompted research. Uh, we conducted research and eventually developed a method and published it. Uh, I think we uh, met right about the time you were oh, publishing is, that. Oh, is actually. that right? Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and my mother's very proud. <laughs> 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 but we've, and, and, but it, it illustrates a point, too, that uh, actually, again, without without a method, without some testing procedure, uh, this evidence is just well, it's useless uh, in terms of then in in the case. But uh, but we've now been successful in being able to type this. See, otherwise, it's just ignored. You can't test it. It's of no use. You know, in in terms of providing useful information. Here, the identity of the assailant. But now, uh, now we have a, a method, and, but there are still examples like that of, of problematic samples. Even with these tremendous advances we've made over the decades, we still have trouble with things, and so the, the need to advance. I do want to interject here that, that when I met Don, I was at my first meeting of the California Forensic Science Institute, which is part of CALCLA. There are a lot of law enforcement brass. Uh, at this particular meeting, and they're listening to Don describe studying feces <laughs> for for DNA, and I'm watching these guys trying to hold it together until he said, "My mother is so proud," yeah. and they all kind of lost <laughs> yeah. it. But yeah. but but it is is something I think the general public isn't aware. Of. That's at a lot of crime scenes. That's yes. It. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I began then reviewing case histories and such, and uh, there are reports uh, dating back to the, uh, as, as far as the records I was looking at, I don't uh, 50s, the 1940s, of stools found, and it's just, uh, it was ignored because we couldn't, we couldn't test it. Yeah. But so it, it, and the point, one important point, in many cases, it's just a single piece of evidence that links the assailant homicides, the assailant to the scene or to the crime, and uh, yes, then without a method, it's that that link is is uh, is lost. So, do outdoor scenes present challenges that are going to be different than the indoor scenes that you described? Are there things that are going to go on there? It would seem so. Yes. Well, uh, the 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 the. There are st first there are there's standard procedures that we follow, but each scene is unique, so we have to be you know flexible in our approach. But the um, um, the outdoor scenes can be problematic in uh, well as far as documentation of evidence. If, you know, uh, our work at a crime scene can be summed up in three words: search, document, and preserve. That's what we do, search for evidence, we'll document the evidence, we'll preserve it. And that can be, uh, um, uh, we can be assisted in those uh, uh, jobs by a working hypothesis. We'll try to develop a working hypothesis about what happened. As far as documentation, see indoors it's quite simple. I'll just choose two perpendicular walls, this wall here and this wall here, and I'll measure from both you know, to the item of evidence. That's called the rectangular method. Now outdoors, we don't, we may not have that advantage of having two perpendicular walls, so we'll have to create perhaps some reference points or 
Um, so it might be a little more difficult because, you know, open spaces as well. It might be some considerable distance to some landmark that we're using. Uh, problems with outdoor scenes. Well, like today, we've got a bit of a breeze. Now imagine a, a, a head hair you find on the victim's body. That'll it could readily blow away. So we, uh, both indoors and outdoors, one, one thing that we do immediately is to determine, all right, what, uh, what fragile evidence do we have here? What evidence could be easily lost or altered? That we'll concentrate on first. Uh, so, yeah, weather is a concern. I've worked scenes, uh, believe it or not, in the rain. I mean, um, in fact, one case where it began raining, I quickly finished sampling, and then, uh, well, the blood was uh, washed down the storm drain. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, definitely uh, weather is a concern. Another thing, if you just notice out here, let's say we have a of crime scene in the parking lot. Again, we have that problem with trash, a lot of trash. Is that related or not? And we work under the tenet that uh, when in doubt, collect. We'd rather collect something that in fact is unrelated than miss it and then discover that later. Because you see, once we release a scene back to the rightful owner, to the public, you, you can do whatever you want to the scene. So we've, after we've released a house, uh, the the uh, the owner had it the interior painted, or recarpeted, so on and so forth. So uh, we have to be sure that um, that yes, it's a that we've done a thorough and systematic job. Well, in this world of the CSI clones and all the true crime stuff on television and uh, news reports and all that, what do you find the the public's biggest misconceptions for what happens at crime scenes and in the crime lab? What, what really goes on as opposed to what the public might think? Yes, I, I would think uh, the biggest misconceptions deal with, well, the, what we can and can't do. Um, I've, but actually, something else came to mind uh, now as a, a professor, um, um, prospective students contact me concerning, uh, you know, they're, they expressed an interest in forensic science, but are surprised to find that they have to major in science. So that, that it is, <laughs> it's an applied science. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, so I, I guess maybe how it's portrayed on television perhaps, but. You mean I could have skipped medical school? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, that's right, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, but um, so there, there is that misconception. It is an applied science, and it requires then an education in biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, st statistics, and such. But I would think more with the general public is uh, well. One thing in terms of our performance out in the field, it, it's definitely a, a teamwork. So there isn't, you know, that one criminalist who has all this authority that is, um, there's a clear division of labor. You know, there's the detectives and then the forensic uh, personnel. Even uh, with the forensic personnel, there's clear division of labor. So there isn't that one, you know, superstar who uh, processes the scene and then arrests somebody and so on and so forth. And that's done within, you know, a, half an hour's time or something. Um, but I, I uh, uh, they, 
the public may be surprised as far as you know the limitations of our methods. For example, time of death. We do not have a single uh, accurate and reliable method to determine time of death, and it's something that I've actually uh, uh, examined myself. That is markers that change after death, and it remains that elusive butterfly, you know, that, is, mm. that everyone wants to capture. But it, um, right, it's, it, it would be, well, it'll be based, if a, a time of death is offered, it uh, will be a range, you know, from this time to this time, but based on various, you know, indicators. That's another thing at the scene, sorry to jump back and forth, but at the we scene. We love it. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> at, at the scene, that's what we're looking for as well, is some kind of indi uh, time indicators. Ah, there's a murder, but look, the, the table was set for two people finished eating. It can be just that simple of an observation. Or in one case here, we have an example. There was um, the kitchen table, but a chair was missing on one side. Maybe the chair, which we found later in another room, maybe that was used in the crime. In fact, it was. The person stepped on it to uh, be able to reach uh, shelving. From, there was theft involved after the murder. But see, it's something that simple. And that's the thing Sometimes it, it I, I think it was Sherlock Holmes, it was said something like the most obvious, the most obvious facts are the most deceptive or something. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing, that's where the detectives were, uh, see, we're kind of sometimes we go into a scene and we're looking at all this, first the minutia, and we have to back up. And that's where the detectives are very skilled at that. Ah, did you see this? Did you see this? Some of the most obvious things. Work might be too concerned already with uh, searching for blood on this carpet, which is good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that that it can be, uh, yeah. That's it's a the perfect thing. murder trial. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Or a burgundy interior, and you just have a car, and you go, oh. If, if oh, any of you I order mean. carpet like this after today, we're going to be very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, of we are. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Or a, actually, yeah, maybe something like Jackson Pollock with red yeah, paint. Right. I, I think he was known as Jack the Dripper. I think. <laughs> <laughs> very, very amusing. Yeah. Well, you talked earlier about the students and their expectations. So, if someone you moved into the educational component of forensic science and and got deeply immersed in that world. How did that come about, and, and what exactly do you do now in that arena? Yes. Well, actually, um, I thought that I would always be a, a practitioner, but uh, there was a, a, a vacancy at Cal State LA. We have a, uh, a master's program in criminalistics. In fact, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary. So we are the longest continuously operating criminalistics program in the, in the nation. And um, uh, there was a vacancy due to the, the death of Anthony Longhetti, Professor Longhetti, who was a very accomplished uh, criminalist. So I was, uh, I applied. And, well, the reason I applied was just my, my respect uh, for education. And also my wife and I earned our degrees at Cal State LA. And uh, uh, it, you know, opened many, many doors. And so it was out of uh, respect uh, for the, the, the institution itself. We support its mission. Actually, there we um, received a quality education at an affordable price. It, it made all the difference. 
yes. And um, um, but uh, of course, then I um, um, was interested as well in uh, not only teaching but research. So I'm a uh, one of three faculty members, full-time criminalistics faculty members. We just hired uh, a third faculty member a couple years ago, uh, uh, Jay Vargas, who's a toxicologist. But uh, Kathy Roberts is the uh, director of the program, and she hired me, and then we worked together, uh, the two of us, for some 14 years, and just were able to hire another full-time faculty member. But yes, my, uh, uh, my interest, of course, is in, in education, and uh, well, my wife and I feel that it's one of our best crime-fighting tools. Mm. That is education, accessible education, and um, but also um, again, I have you know interest in in uh, research. Tell us about some of the projects you're working on. Yes, well, um, one of the I'm actually right now. Uh, uh, I give you first of all, I give you people all the credit in the world as as writers. Uh, just your, you know, the the work you do, the struggles and such. I'm just completing a. It's, oh, it's only 20 pages, but a technical note for the Journal of Forensic Sciences, and I've just been pulling my hair off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, technical writing, let alone just uh, what you do, uh, you know, creating these wonderful characters and scenarios and such. Any rate, uh, yeah, writing. That's another story. But any rate, um, I'm writing a paper on a, a, the second of, uh, of a, a, a proof of concept study. And it's actually to advance bloodstain pattern interpretation. So um, let's just consider first um, a homicide case in Los Angeles where a woman was murdered, her throat was cut, and the, the right uh, common crowded artery was severed. But her body's taken from the murder scene to be dumped elsewhere literally. So she was discovered and identified and then we went to her home where she lived with her husband and we found on one of the walls an arterial bloodstain pattern. So we were able to state at the end of the investigation that she was murdered in her home because we were able to link that pattern to this the specific wound. See, and that shows that's the power of bloodstain pattern analysis. Here, there's one of those rare cases where you have well cause and effect. Uh, a cut artery produces, can produce a specific pattern, and that's what was shown here at the scene. So we made, were able to make that connection. But let's consider another case, similar circumstances. Woman, uh, actually in this case, she was stabbed in the chest, body dumped, taken from the murder scene. So, and her, uh, she's identified, we went to her home, and what we find in the bedroom of her home, where she lives with her husband, are several circular drops of blood. Now, the husband says, that's my wife's blood, but he says it's from a cut finger. Now, that may be true. The pattern is consistent with that, but it may also be evidence of the murder. The problem is that pattern can be created by a wide range of injuries, from a finger prick to a stab wound in the chest. And you see, um, so there's that nonspecific evidence that we have. It's ambiguous, you see. Uh, so what? So there's, that's the problem. So what we found, though, in research conducted at Cal State LA, 
is that those, say, those blood stains, those circular, several circular stains, can actually contain trace amounts of wound tissue. And we can identify, uh, mind you, this is just in, in, in very minute amounts, trace amounts. That standard method, you can't detect it. You look at the stain, you can't see any wound cells or anything. But we, we can identify those cells using microRNA. So that's something new in forensics. So just as you can identify a person with DNA, you can identify tissue and cells with microRNAs. And so that's what we discovered. Uh, so our first uh, proof of concept study dealt with gunshot wounds. That was what we considered best case scenario. See, we didn't know if the technique was going to work. But we were able to f actually distinguish, say, a spatter from a headshot versus spatter from a chest shot, testing both patterns for brain cells. Hmm. And, uh, but then the question was, well, will it work with stab wounds? Because, of course, there's far less force involved. And that was our last proof of concept, and we've been able to demonstrate it. Now, not all stains, it won't work with all stains and such, but at least now we have a method then to further characterize these stains. So that's just, that's just one example. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Uh, well, so, uh, um, uh, but it applies, you know, it could be a, um, a smear of blood on clothing. See, um, that's just something to consider about, you know, uh, well, casework very quickly. Um, see, best case scenario in investigations is when the victim is a stranger to the suspect. So there, these two people have no reason to be together. So if I find suspect with victim that... The only reason we find the evidence of them together is because he committed the murder, you see, something like that. But, other, but oftentimes, you see, they're acquaintances, they're man and wife. And, and so, yes, you would expect to find husband's evidence with wife and vice versa. You would expect to find these two together because they live together. So now we need, uh, so it's, we don't have that advantage of stranger relationships, you know. So it's now we need something further to figure out what is actually what's what's relevant. And I hope I made myself clear with that. Very. <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's fascinating to think of how all of this is going to change uh, investigation in the future. Well, speaking of which, you also train law enforcement uh, through the programs there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at CSULA? Yes. I believe you mentioned the institute already, the California Forensic Science Institute, and it's a, 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 a presidential chartered institute at Cal State LA. But it's our it's a it's a forensic science resource. It's a it's a think tank, and it's membered by m uh, many professionals. Uh, but uh, the institute was actually is that um, the offices of the institute are house at the Hertzberg-Davis Forensic Science Center, along with our school and the uh, LAPD and LA County Sheriff's Crime Labs. But the Institute is responsible for uh, applied, uh, to support applied research, in-service training, and public education. But uh, we've offered a number of in-service training courses through the Institute for, for criminalists. So these are practitioners. Um, now, one thing, um, um, 
I can give a, an example of uh, applied research. Recently, the Sheriff's Department uh, came to the faculty with a problem that it was uh, um, a bloodstain problem, actually. It was, um, so someone was shot in the head, but the, one of the patterns produced was, uh, resembles cast-off, and that's when you know, blood is uh, thrown from a, a moving object or an object that stops. Uh, moving, uh, so it was unusual. But other people have reported this, and they were uh, wanted to know: if, could we uh, figure out the mechanism behind it? You know, so it may be we may, if we know the mechanism, we may be able to use it in reconstructions. But anyway, so this actually began uh, uh, um, um, a partnership with an, uh, an engineer at Cal State LA, engineering faculty. And uh, uh, Dr. David Raymond, a colleague of mine, he's a biomechanical engineer, and a number of his students uh, for their senior design project, we began investigating how to build a surrogate human head for training and research. So we've made some, uh, some progress. Uh, well, you mentioned about uh, the general public. Um, that one, as far as misconceptions, you might think, oh, you should already have computer modeling of the human head for this type of work. It's, that's years from now, actually. We're just trying to construct a, a realistic, lifelike human head that has a, a functioning circulatory system to begin with. But, uh, and we're doing it piece by piece, tissue by tissue and such. We've made some, some advancements. But right now, actually, uh, as far as the model that's used for bloodstain pattern interpretation, often we're just striking a bloody sponge or shooting a bloody sponge. Now, you can learn something from that, but it's not as, of course, sophisticated as the human head for most of us. Yes. Unless you're SpongeBob SquarePants yeah, or something. Right. But uh, there's limitations there. But that's just sort of some of the <coughs> examples of, yes, in-service training that uh, the faculty are involved with uh, through the California Forensic Science Institute, which again is uh, uh, sort of our, our it, it's to serve as a bridge between the university and uh, the crime labs, and it, so it's a it's a it's a forensic a valuable forensic science resource, local resource. But, well, this is kind of an unusual show. Jan and I have never done this before to orient our, our listeners that we're recording this in Los Angeles before the uh, Mystery Writers of America Los Angeles chapter. So we got all these little murderers sitting out here looking at us. Yes. And a lot of our listeners are also little murderers. So what kind of advice would you give to writers of crime fiction to make sure they get the forensic science and the stories right? What What general things would you say? Well certainly uh, well programs such as these can be you know can be very helpful. I hope just in this brief time maybe you learn something about the you know the limitations of our techniques or our basic approach and such. Well I, I know that you have uh, uh, Doug uh, written a book uh, Forensic Science for Crime Writers, yeah. Mystery Couple Writers, them, yeah. yes. Uh, uh, a very good uh, source is 
well as a, a, a forensic science for dummies. Mm -hmm. Well, not just yeah, not in stating that you're dummies by no, any means. No, we're all dummies. No, all right. right. Well, yeah. um, no, I just bought one forensic or uh, string theory for dummies, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's a start. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's beyond. That's wonderful. Yeah, we were just talking about you know, quantum. Uh, physics and such, and uh, yeah, very exciting times. Get you farther times. than the Wikipedia article um, I tried to yeah, get through. Yeah, no. <laughs> but um, also, uh, well, the California Forensic Science Institute, uh, again, one of its uh, missions is to provide uh, public education, and so we host forums on, you know, say very hot, you know, current topics in in forensic science and, and criminal justice. There's a number of introductory, uh, you know, books as well. Uh, uh, that is, uh, you know, college level uh, courses. Uh, yes. That, uh, what about the yeah. internet? Oh, the internet. Yeah, but it uh, can be good, bad, yeah. and ugly. Right, uh, right. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, of course, I'll always be be concerned about the source, but um, uh, no, I, I often start there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a good starting point. Well, Wikipedia, as you mentioned. You know, at least, it, and uh, from there, then, uh, if you're, you know, just completely unfamiliar with something, and th then uh, perhaps there's links then to, uh, uh, well, peer-reviewed uh, journal articles or uh, professional organizations, um, you know, such as the American Academy of Forensic Sciences or the California Association of Criminalists that uh, that can help direct you from there. So always consider the source. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got time for maybe one question, so I'm going to make our last question uh, something near to and dear to our hearts. Um, what should the public be asking agencies uh, of agencies that provide uh, forensic science services, and what can community members do to ensure that they get a better uh, quality of forensic science from their local providers? Yes. Well, what what should then uh, the general public be asking of, of crime labs? Well, they um, they they should expect quality, uh, of course, quality service. Uh, uh, and as to how to accomplish that, uh, well, we were just discussing. Uh, um, well, I'm, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but ultimately, it all comes down to money. Uh, support of support of these laboratories. Well, I mentioned my beginnings. Uh, there were five forensic biologists when I joined the department, serving the whole of the county. So we were grossly understaffed and under-equipped. Now things have gotten uh, considerably better, but uh, there's um, it it but it can never be status quo. That is, we uh, all of our all of the disciplines, all of our methods have limitations, and we need to we need to make advancements to better serve the the community. So it it comes down to yes, public awareness, that is the uh, of the importance of this work, and public's uh, support to continue to make these to to make these advancements. Well, Don, I would love to have you come back and talk Absolutely. to us again yeah. because we've just <laughs> scratched the surface here. I want to thank the SoCal chapter of MWA for having us here, and thank you very much for your time, and 
Uh, we hope you'll visit our site. Uh, we're at crimeandscienceradio.com. Uh, you'll find links to uh, some of what we've talked about and other information. Uh, also look up Doug Lyle's uh, site as well and dplyle.com. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Don. Good My pleasure.